For all its super stellar glamour and the exquisite 70s and 80s production design that's very a la mode, Winning Time is just a whirlwind of benign energy. That's Nick Hilton, the independent, talking about Winning Time. Yeah, hell of a review. Uh, we are taping this, first and foremost, on Thursday, April 14th. So Chris and I are going to break down the six episodes that we've seen so far. I give a recap. I know by the time you listen to this, the seventh episode will have aired. So if there's anything crazy on that episode, sorry, we're not going to talk about it. And hopefully nothing major happens in the world of entertainment the next few days, because we will not be aware of it, obviously, today. But we are talking about that. That's for our new, it's talking about Winning Time, our old, a great Jimmy Cagney movie, Very which is on old. TCM. Yeah, this is the oldest film, as you mentioned last week on the episode, Love Me or Leave Me, about a toxic relationship from 1955. Where's my Doris Day fans? Raise your hands. You're going to love this. And our wild card, it's a great one. Chuck Klosterman, he's a brilliant writer. He has written a book called The 90s. I absolutely loved it. So make sure we you We got two wild Chuck cards. Was- yeah, we have Chuck and we have Billy, of course. Yeah. Billy's the, the more surprise wild card. Billy is here, of course, on the Dan Levitard Show. We want to have him on to discuss a debate between Bautista versus The Rock, but he also gives opinions about being a dad at the park, and uh, there's lots of other stuff. We go around the horn here. I think Billy. we should get to that first. I like Billy. He's, he brings okay. a fun energy. I say we get to that. We'll do the reviews after. We got fun with Chuck. What an episode. This See, this episode might be as little, like, we're doing Winning Time. We got that old movie. But this is just personality-driven. Chuck Klosterman and Billy Gill bring it this episode. Billy, take it away. All right, so the other day, Cody texted me. because listen, Billy is on a rampage right now. He is talking about Dave Bautista versus The Rock. And I said... Well, it seems like a fairly uh, easy argument here, right? Win for the Rockies. Like, no, can you join the Zoom right now? I said, actually, I can't. We're on spring break right now. Kids are at the park. But I'm, I'm happy to discuss uh. this with Billy another time. So it's always great to catch up with Billy. Just celebrate his birthday. Obviously, we love him uh, here on Cinephile. So uh, he probably wants advice on how to deal with kids at a park just as much as this conversation. Because <laughs> he's going to be entering that world shortly. Now, how old is your little one right now? She is 10 months old, and we actually went to the park for the first time yesterday. Mm. She loved it. What are the chances of that? Do you have any good small talk with the other dads? No. Some solid small talk. To no, no. I didn't I didn't partake in any small talk. The thing is, is that she's not, like, walking yet. Right. So I did the weird thing where, like, I was climbing up on the jungle gym and then, like, going down the slide with her. <laughs> and she yeah. seemed, like, very unimpressed with the whole concept yeah. of the slide. I'll do the thing where, like... You kind of like, I don't know if I'll get in trouble for this, but like you toss your kid like up in the air a little oh, bit yeah. and then you catch him and she's like, ah, I love it. And like laughs. Oh, that's not but, like, child the, abuse. The that's sensation... fine. It's okay. No, that is not. That is, you're safe there. That the sensation of the slide though did nothing for her yet. So I think maybe it was a little early for the park. The most awkward small talk at a park with kids happens at the swing because yeah. your kid wants you to push them. So it's like you're standing like four mm-hmm. feet from another dad and it's just like, Hey, we're pushing our kids. Yeah, how about these kids? Huh? It's hot out today, huh? Like, you just start talking about the weather. It's it's really awkward. Cody's right, because elsewhere, you're sitting on a bench. And if the other person's sitting on the yeah. bench, you can just quickly grab your phone and pretend you're doing something even though you're not. But the swing, you can't check your phone while you're pushing a swing. Then you look like an absentee father. Yeah. So you, you really do have to focus yeah. on the swing. What I find the insecurity stems from is the other people are more actively doing the swing. Like, wee! Like, they're making the noises too, whereas I'm pretty yeah. passive. I'm, like, I'm just pushing. But I'm like, okay, well, you're showing me up now. So now I'm, you know, you're like Jim Carrey, how expressive you are. So now I have to be over the top be excited about this. Yeah. I'm trying to teach my four-year-old, you do it yourself. You kick those legs. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm here if you need me. But you go. I'm like. I'm like running a training camp. The other people are going wee, and I'm like push, push your legs. <laughs> Hold on. Like I'm, I'm no no joke well, around here. I don't want to get into like a dad contest, which is what it seems like you end up doing sometimes. 100. <laughs> percent 
And there's two types of parents, Billy, you'll see. They go to the park. One is they're literally running with their kids. They're playing hide-and-seek. They're playing tag. They're yeah. peekaboo. And then the guys who are just like on their phone. They're like, no, i got to get something done. Go ahead. You run around for 10 minutes. And either one is yeah. fine. But there's a lot of judgment being at the park. It's not a judgment-free zone. Speaking hmm. of judgment. So Batista is your guy. To me, this feels like a fairly easy argument. I was like, I, I mean, I don't really want to. I don't want to do this like a lawyer, like give you an opening argument. But I'll just do this for the Rock: Jungle Cruise, Jumanji, Moana, Central Intelligence, San Andreas, Rampage, Tooth Fairy. Pretty good resume. What do we got with Dave Batista? We're talking about range, though. Isn't the debate here, Billy? Range. Okay, this is what I said. Okay. I said, Dave Batista versus the Rock. Dave Batista is a better actor, but the Rock is a bigger star. So if you want to have a, you know, hit movie, you would get The Rock, right? right. But you also know it's going to be The Rock as a cop or it's going to be The Rock as a, you know, <laughs> a, a skyscraper. He was like an amputee insurance salesman, I think, that was in a building that was on fire. It's just always The Rock. He's going to be a cop rock or he's going to be a co- whatever rock, soldier rock, whatever it is. He's just kind of always The Rock. Right. Lawyer rock. You're, you're getting his Isn't Batista? Exactly. Bautista's the same thing, though. Like, yeah, that, no. this is what I, need to, I need to hear Bautista's range because I'm with Cody here. Like, I'm with you. So far, you're selling me. The Rock is just a singular personality. Yes, he does not have a lot of range. Okay, but where is Bautista showing that he's Daniel Day-Lewis? Like, I missed that part. <laughs> so Bautista has been an alien. He's been a future space human. He's been an old <laughs> robot. He's been a, a cop. Here's the thing about the Bautista versus The Rock debate yeah. that we didn't get to. Uh, and some people pointed it out, and I'm glad that they did. I don't even think that the debate goes between Batista and The Rock for best former wrestler turned actor. Because I think John Cena has that. Yeah. I wow. think John Great Cena is wreck. a better actor Ooh. than the two of them. And the two of them are just competing for second place. I love that take. Because Cena has done comedies... He, I mean, in Blockers, he was hysterical, playing a father who was, you know, very pertinent about what his daughter was doing. In Trainwreck, again, he's playing with that, that, that whole stereotype of him being this masculine guy, but he's also got this, you know, feminine aspect to him. So you're right. John Cena could actually be in a comedy. I, don't, I haven't seen John Cena in a drama yet, but he's definitely got action and comedy, whereas The Rock is action comedy. Like, he's just basically doing the same thing. You could ch- have you checked out Vacation Friends? I think it was like a Hulu exclusive movie with John Cena. <laughs> Incredible. Really? Incredible. Yeah, he's Incredible. A- I think it was incredible. <laughs> I'm adding vacation you, friends to my watch list. Yeah. How do you? Well, hold on. Don't don't do that just yet because then I feel like if you waste two hours of your time, then you're gonna hold it. Right, like me. Billy. I'll never I'll never trust Billy again. <laughs> well, hold on a second. So, what is your what is your like standard for viewing? Like, do you go and check out Rotten Tomatoes or any of those? Yeah, generally I go to Rotten Tomatoes first and check it out. What I used to check is only the critic score, but now I look at the audience mm. score as well. Because sometimes I'm like, listen. Sometimes this isn't a movie made for critics. Of course, they're not going to like comedies as much. But if the audience score is high, cool. I like to see generally those numbers both together. But generally, my first thing is I'll go check Rod Tomatoes, critics, and audience score. And then I'll check a couple critics that I generally like, see what they say. And then I go from there. For, but I will not always trust the critics. For example, The Bubble, which got torched by critics. Judd Apatow movie yeah. with uh, David Duchovny and Keegan Michael Key. I liked it. The not critics good. hated it. Cody hated it too. Cody's with the critics this time. Yeah. So it, you got to kind of you know weigh it out each time, I think. Back to the debate at hand sure. here. Though, yeah, the rock in ballers. I believe there's a scene when he's talking to a psychiatrist. He, I think he cries. That's some like it's he might have been bad crying, but it's it shows some. I don't think Bautista's ever cried in a role. That's that for me has the rock win this this category. Have you seen Stuber? Let me just oh, ask Stuber, you right there. Right. Have you seen Stuber? Camille Nanjiani. Yes, that's a good call. Yeah. Stuber. <laughs> you know what? That actually wins the argument. 
I would have thought The Rock wins it, but the sheer mention of Stuber, that's a victory for Bautista. Underrated film. Go check it out. Stuber for the Look win. Well done, Billy. Good job. Adnan, who is your uh, who's your worst wrestling actor, I would say? Because the WWE had, like, their, I think they have their own production company, right? So, like, yeah. you'll occasionally see, like... Things that are named like the uh, whatever it is, like the the Saver Number Seven, starring the Miz, and like Stone Cold Steve Austin would have like movies that were produced by the WWE, but they never caught on. Right, Goldberg was in movies at one yeah. point in time. Goldberg think, did too. a couple movies. There's no question about it. I think uh, the Miz is a talent. He's definitely entertaining. His reality show. He definitely knows what he's doing. I think it's got to be Hulk Miz. Hogan. Like Hulk Hogan's made some pretty massive. Really, yeah. like, I mean, if you try to watch, wasn't he in Thunder in Paradise? Thunder in Paradise, I believe. Or whatever that show uh, was the called. The Mister Nanny he made was a horrific. Mister Nanny was epic. Mister Nanny was epic. The wow. bad guy in that. Who's the bad guy in that? David Johansson? <laughs> this is David Johansson playing Tommy Thanatos. That guy's got a face on him. That guy leads the league in face. Sherman Hemsley, also in that movie. The best thing we can say about Mr. Nanny, it was short. Hour and 24 minutes. We like short movies. Yeah. I'll give Mr. Nanny that. I have The Miz in my top three reality stars turned actors or turned something else. <laughs> but hang on a second. He's a okay. wrestler. Who's the other two? He's a wrestler turned reality star. No, he started no, no, on no, the no. real world. Yeah. So he, he started on the real world wrestler. and turned reality star again. He made the switch back. Right. But he started on the real world, and on the real world, he would play, you know, this character where he was a wrestler, where he called himself The Miz, and then he became The Miz. He was on Real World, on The Challenge, all this stuff. I have he was The Miz a- on that list. I have Jamie Chung on that list. You know Jamie mm-hmm. Chung, actress? Really? She was in The Hangover, I think, okay. three. And then she was in The Misfits, with, which I watched recently. So she was in The Worst Hangover. Um, no, you know what? She was in two. She was in The Hangover where they were in Thailand. I think she was the bride that was getting married. And then third on my list of MTV reality stars turned something else. I know that he doesn't like to talk about it. Kyle Brandt. Yeah, Kyle Brandt. He does not like to talk about it. Like, I I know one of the producers, Mark. What was he on? I think he was on Real World, wasn't he? He was was on Real World, yeah. It's credit where credit is due, but he did not. I've heard he does not like to be referred to as... A former real world uh, football guy. He's a football guy, football through and through, tough, masculine, not a real world guy. Would you guy, Cody, would you ever do a reality show? Of course you would. Of course I would. Billy would do it. Really? What do you think you'd be best at? No, I have certain ones that I would not be good at that I wouldn't. Survivor. Because I knew that it. No, not for me. Growing up, I thought I would. When I was young and in the Boy Scouts, I thought I could do Survivor, (laughs) no shot. And now, as like an adult, I'm like, no way in hell. In fact, I had a friend of mine. Who, uh, who for like a bachelor party was like the strangest thing. Yeah. For a bachelor party, he sent us a text. And he's like, hey, guys, we're going to go down to the Everglades and we're going to canoe or kayak seven <laughs> miles in and we're going to go camping. There's no electricity. There's nothing. Yeah. It's going to be great Like for my bachelor party. And I had a conversation with my wife and I'm like, I want to be there for him, but also I may not come back because <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not conditioned to kayak for seven miles and like – I know what happens on some of these tide rises. Oh, All of a sudden, a gator comes in. It's dark out. Then there's like a manhunt looking for us. And then, you know, you're going to be raising our daughter alone. So yeah. I think I'm going to have to sit that one out, which I did. That's a pass on that one. I, I would think um, Survivor's tough just because, like you said, you're away from family. And it, the challenge would be how tough. How about Dancing with the Stars? Learning to do the cha-cha. Ooh, I could kill Dancing with the Stars. You I think could, with training, could, you'd be a good training. dancer? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, with training, you could be a good... I, David I think Ross that told me, you're getting like most... two months, and it's like eight hours I've a day. You're getting a lot of training. I've seen some bad dancers on there. I've seen some well, bad Mayne dancers Kenny Mayne wasn't great. I mean, we love Kenny Mayne. He was the first one voted off. It was rough. 
You just need, well, you know, but the, I, I don't, was it because he was a bad dancer or was it because he was not the most Popular. known yeah. in that universe? Which, by the way, Kenny Mayne, uh, to my knowledge of Dancing with the Stars, is through my mother who watches Dancing with the Stars. Kenny Mayne, I think, after getting voted off first, like in later seasons, got a recurring role where he did like his own like version of Sports Center on Dancing with the Stars where he was breaking down tape. Like, oh, I wow. think Kenny Mayne became a thing within the Dancing with the Star world. Within the ecosystem, Kenny Mayne is yeah. That's pretty awesome. Even though he didn't succeed in the dancing portion, I think as a personality, he grew throughout the years. I want to try Chopped. I'm not I'm not saying I'm a great cook. I'm not no. saying I'd win. I'm just I saying that's a reality, reality show. show. No, that's, that's a reality competition. competition. Yeah, there's okay. a whole there's a whole breakdown. Yeah, like, like Big Brother is one. Right. That's one I, I I've auditioned for. I yeah, auditioned for applied. Is it more applied? No, I went to I, I went to a Brandsmart USA the morning after my wedding with my wife. The day before we left on our honeymoon, we got up, we drove like forty five to fifty miles to a Brandsmart USA that was like in West Palm Beach, hungover. And, and yeah, and we we I still have in my closet like the the paper, and we did like a it was for a, a sixty second audition tape where we like said who we were, said our stories. And then that was it. And that season of Amazing Race actually just finished uh, wrapping up recently. It just aired. What happened was, because we got married in July of 2019, um, and then they didn't start recording until, like, December 2020. So they started the season, and then Three Legs In, they shut down production because of COVID, because the world shut down. So they had to stop the season in the middle, and then they had to bring it back up again, like, a year and a half later, and half the teams mm -hmm. dropped out. And I was like, you know what? Probably best that we didn't make it that season because that seems like it would have been quite hectic. Oof. And there was teams that didn't come back because, you know, things, they got new jobs, they had kids, stuff like that. So, like, my wife would have been pregnant. If not having a kid, we probably wouldn't have come back. That's so incredible. Maybe one day. Is... The one thing about Amazing Race, yeah. I, I love the show. I love to watch the traveling of the world. I don't like to travel. Like, I don't like flying. I, hate flying. I don't like I don't like how hectic it can be. And then there's, like, a high-pressure, like, situation. So I've, I've convinced myself that I want to be on this show to the point that we even auditioned, but it's like completely out of my comfort zone. But what I've told myself is it will be my way of traveling the world. It only takes three weeks to do because that's what the shooting time is, right? So if I'm the most successful team, I traveled the entire world in three weeks, and then I can be like, we don't need to go to Egypt. We already <laughs> did Egypt. We already did the Maldives. We went to Australia. We've done Great it Wall all. Great Wall of China. We We're good. Travel. Yeah. Exactly. We're good. We don't need to take a 20-hour flight anywhere. We've done that already. Get it out of my system while I'm young. Billy's always thinking ahead of the game. Last thing before we let you go, this is a callback to when I was filling in on the Levitard show back when we were at ESPN. And it was you know, a July day. We we're talking baseball, this and that. And then I brought up as a conversational talking point, what, was, what is the most important to you? Like, what, what is the most satisfying, most relieving to uh, – Number one, going to do a pee. Number two, going to poo. Uh, going to eat something or going to drink something. And we carried that segment for a better part of an hour. At one point, Billy goes, did you ever think when you were in broadcasting, at some point you would be hosting a national sports radio show, and this would be the conversation which would dominate the entire time? It came to the point we had a guest on. We didn't ask, wait, 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 I wanted to vote. Hey, can I, are we still doing that thing? Like, oh, I'm sorry, yes. Would you rather pee, poo, take a bite or something, or drink something? I think the consensus still came down to, Cody, and I don't remember if you voted or you were on the show, but I think it's... I think it's at number two, because if you don't do a number two and you're backed up, like you're getting cramps and stuff. If you don't drink all day, you can battle thirst. You can battle poo. Uh, but I think urine is a big one, too. Like I, gotta, I pee like 20 times a day. Like, it's crazy. 
Wait, how much water do you I drink? I drink a lot of water. Like Troy Aikman apparently pees really? a ton too. He's like he he said that he's a, he almost needs like a catheter when he's calling games. That, I feel like I pee like four times a day. I'll tell you this thing. I've been up for four hours today. I've already peed five times. So I think throughout the course of the day really? I'm looking at fifteen times. Yeah, it's crazy. Do you, wow. do you do the bottle where you're like kind of measuring your intake or you just drink a lot of water? I just drink a lot, drink of, water a lot of water. Like I just naturally drink a lot of water, but it's starting to piss me I off. I'm I like, I, do I don't like going to the bathroom this Literally. much. It's annoying. I'm like, it's starting to piss me off. I was upset, Adnan, last week about the whole Clayton Kershaw thing. I, and I don't know how you feel about that, but I, I do not like a pitcher being taken out in a no-hitter perfect It's game. pretty frustrating when you're like, dude, 80 I'm pitches. Fan. 80 pitches. Well... It's well, the second week of the season. But I'm with the, the coach here. Are we well, not trying okay. to build up arm strength? No, to like mid, no. If it's, it's, it was midseason, I'd be with there's you. There's been 236 the no-hitters. There's been 23 perfect games. Like, it's so... Oh, so we should risk his health. We Listen, should risk he gets hurt all the time. Listen, he's probably exactly. going to get hurt anyways this year. Let's be honest. Thank you. Kershaw Thank missed you. two months last year, July and August, and he missed the postseason. If we were to take bets right now, Kershaw getting hurt? Of course he is. So might as well be in the service of a perfect game. Thank you. Thank you. And he's and three pitches later, he could blow it, right? Exactly. He's at 80 pitches. Clayton Kershaw's done everything in his career, right? How great would it be for him to get a perfect game? And yeah. to your point, he's going to be hurt yeah. in the middle of the season anyways, if not at the end of the season. Right. And and Dave Roberts does this all the time. I think this was at least the fourth time that I could find on a very quick Google search of him <laughs> taking someone out of a no-hitter or a perfect game. And it's always the argument of, we need to keep him for the rest of the right. year. And it's like, one, you have a super team with like the second or third highest payroll in baseball right. every single right. year. You're going to be fine. Two, every single year that you've done this, when you did this to Ross Stripling, when you did this to Rich Hill, when you did this to Walker Bueller, guess what you didn't win at the end of the season? Yeah. The World Series. Right. So it didn't really make that much of a difference. Correct. 20 pitches in April is not going to kill Clayton Kershaw because he's going to kill his arm doing something else right. Here's the thing. during the Let season Let him get the anyways. perfect game and then take two weeks off. That's good. Come yeah. back in May. That's all good. That's fine. We don't need to have you for a little while. 80 pitches? He wasn't even upset about That's it. That's the worst part. I shouldn't care about Clayton Kershaw getting a perfect game more than Clayton Kershaw should care about him getting a perfect game. Okay? That's a major character flaw in Clayton Kershaw. If you're not going out there saying, I need a perfect game every time you're out there, and you're not bothered by this, I don't know that I want Clayton Kershaw on my team. There, wow. I saw Put it. it on the poll, Guillermo. Clayton Kershaw, character flaw, yes or no, but he was not upset about getting a perfect game being taken Good out. Good job, Billy. Good appearance. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed 
so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, before we get to the reviews, I do have to mention a real sad note that Gilbert Gottfried has yeah. passed away. The great comedian of the age of 67. This was a guy who honestly took chances like nobody else. Edgy and crude humor got him into trouble on several occasions. Three weeks after 9-11, Gottfried joked he couldn't catch a direct flight from New York to California because they said they have to stop at the Empire State Building first. The crowd gasped and decried too soon, but Gottfried was able to win the audience over, quickly made headlines by telling one of the first 9-11 jokes. Live at the 1991 Emmy Awards, Gottfried made several masturbation jokes about Paul Rubin's recent arrest for masturbating in an adult movie theater, which resulted in Gottfried being blacklisted by producers. The comedian also lost his job of voicing the Aflac duck after tweeting jokes about the 2011 Tohoku Japanese earthquake disaster. Gilbert Gottfried, though, was a guy that was all over the place. And this documentary, by the way, which is what you should check out. It's titled Gilbert. Owen Gleiberman, the great critic for Variety, said, Godfrey displays no regrets. He has the courage of his abrasive conviction. The most offensive joke we see him tell is one in which he covers his own daughter to Mackenzie Phillips. But if the joke on some level is indefensible, it's really one designed to mock his own securities. He is full of fear, but fearless. Of course, my great friend Scott Rogowski, Rags was tight with Gilbert Godfrey. I texted him when I heard the news. He said, yeah, I actually had spoken to his wife a couple days ago, Dara, and she had told Scott at that point they were taking Gilbert off life support, and Scott told me he had a good cry, and that was it. But a lot of us did not know he was sick, dies at the age of 67, great in Beverly Hills Cop 2. Obviously, people know him as the voice in Aladdin, but an incredible comedian, like I said, fearless, and a guy who had a real hit on, on Cameo. I mean, doing those messages, he was making six figures a year, 100,000, 150,000, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, other stuff, Great, great uh, comedian. Most unique. Voice, so. Like if you, th if I think of comedians from like like you said a bit of a loose cannon I feel like if he yeah. wasn't such a loose cannon he could have had an even better career because of how talented doing impressions I think he had like a 12 show run on SNL like yes. like and he just didn't get along with the writers like he's one <laughs> of these guys that was uber talented but he couldn't really follow rules so like he yes. always ended up getting like fired like he said the Aflac stuff like he always lost gigs because he right. didn't follow he didn't, he didn't want to be produced it's like I'm doing my thing I'm Gilbert Godfrey blessed and cursed and of course Ben Lyons has to have a story about him and when I texted Ben he sent me a video Gilbert Godfrey made a cameo in a video that Ben produced, like a music video, years ago. And actually, the day of the video shoot, Godfrey asked Ben for $20 at the end of the day for a cab home. I gave him the money. He put it in his pocket and said, I think I'll walk. Also famously cheap. I heard Howard Stern telling stories about how he would always take, like, every, if, like in their green room, they'd have, like, six water bottles. And after his hit, he would, like, scoop up all six water bottles and, like, walk and leave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wild. All right. No expense to spare when it comes to winning time. That is the new show from our friend Adam McKay, one of my teammates here at Metal Arc, and I've really enjoyed it so far. Through six episodes, it's a story about the 1980s L.A. Lakers, and what I like about it is the style. They've got different film stocks. There's a lot of breaking the fourth wall. That's expression meaning when you look at the camera yeah. and talk to the camera. John C. Rowley, I think, is fabulous as the lead. So good. Michael Shannon, who's one of my favorite actors, was originally cast as the lead. He starts filming it, and then he hates the whole concept of breaking the fourth wall. He goes, I, this is so unnerving to be as an actor looking at the camera. So he quits. McKay has to hustle now. What am I going to do? He calls up John C. Riley. Hey, you got two days. Do you want to play Jerry Buss in the show I'm doing called Winning Time? Uh, okay, I'll do it. Except for the fact Will Ferrell wanted to do the role. Now, him and Adam McKay have had a falling out. It ends up being John C. Riley calling Will Ferrell to say, hey, I'm playing Jerry Buss. Ferrell's like, are you kidding? I told McKay I want to do the role. As McKay has now publicly said, I fucked up. That's on me. But I got to tell you. Nothing against Will Ferrell. I think John C. Riley's oh. amazing as Jerry Buss. The shirt down or the navel, the hair, the voice. I can't imagine another actor, Chris, than John C. Riley playing Jerry Buss. I 
am with you. He's the best so far. I mean, he, I, I'm loving this show. I mean, like you said, I think I, I saw one of the reviews. They were criticizing the uh, the editing on it. I love the editing yeah. on this. I, it's very. They're taking a lot of creative creative hacks. At one point, a newspaper article's talking to you. It's not just the characters. <laughs> Remember a couple episodes back, like the newspaper yeah. article of Tarkani, the coach that they're. It's just I love the creative hacks that this show is taking. I love the style of it. I love the music of it. Is perfect music for the time. I'm six episodes in, and I, I am in. And Jack McKinney created the fast-paced offense. That, that guy doesn't yeah. get any credit. I, I didn't even know who he was. I mean, maybe Lakers fans do. No, I'm with you. I had no idea. This Jack, Jack McKinney, like, he made the, the Showtime Lakers, and then Riley just got to take it over, I guess. So hard with these shows, especially in basketball. Where are you going to find a guy that can look and play like Magic Johnson? They're very smart. They haven't shown too many uh, shots of them actually playing basketball because, of course, it's going to look too fake and cheap, whatever. So it's like... Just worry about more of the face and the acting. And the, the guy playing Magic Johnson, the smile he's got, like, oh, my God, that's the key. They said they cast literally 200 people. And once they saw him, like, okay, we got our Magic Johnson. And uh, I think Quincy Isaiah has been terrific as Magic. Also really hard to catch uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I thought that episode was one of my favorites so far. Uh, Solomon Hughes is playing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The fact that, you know, he's Muslim. You yeah. see him praying. You see him listening to jazz, the New York Times. But he's an aloof guy. He's not a good teammate. He's not one of the boys. Kind of, you know, tells the guys off him and Magic go head-to-head. Like, I love the way they're showing those characters. Because now Kareem has become a much more well-liked guy. He writes an article for Hollywood Reporter. Although he did criticize LeBron the other day. So Kareem's still a guy that will, you know, take shots, speak his mind where need be. But I think particularly Isaiah as Magic with that smile. Also rampant womanizer. At least four scenes of him doing cunnilingus. Like, very interesting character trait. Like, all right, Magic, big on going down on girls. I was going to say that, too. Usually sex scenes are like, you know, it's sex. In this one, they're very, they want to get the point across. This was what Magic Magic was into like it's like it's six episodes in I think we've seen him do it like four times already yeah, I'm telling you it's at least four so far <laughs> particularly that that sixth episode where Cindy his girlfriend's upset with him they make up you think okay how are they gonna make up well, of course you're gonna rip her panties off and go down her Not, again. Like, this yeah, it's, it was I, that's so funny you brought that up I was like it's such an odd note and I love at the end of these episodes the creative liberties they're taking I don't know what's yeah. real I don't know what's fake I didn't know the Jack McKinney bike fall I was like is that real that actually did happen I was okay. like, but you see at the end of the episode, they sh- they throw up the disclaimer. Like, yeah. none of the, all this might be fake. Like, it, yeah, exactly. It's a true story, but some of this shit we made up. So it's like Sally I, I, Field, very good as Jesse Buss, yes. of course, famous actress, Academy Award winner. Jason Clark as Jerry West. Now, a very polarizing character. Part of me goes, hey, he's giving a good performance. He's very memorable and very intense and volcanic. A part of me says, it's too much. There's way too many F-bombs. Like, I got it. I don't think Jerry West was this profane. Apparently, he's intense. not. Apparently, that's one of the ones that people are saying, like, he's getting the raw yeah. end of this. Like, he's not yeah. like he act, like he, like he's portrayed here is not the way. And, and how we feel about Adrian Brody is Riley. I'm not buying it yet. No, I'm with you. Somebody said they have a real likeness to each other. I'm like, they do? I'm like, I, I, I mean... Adrian Brody's got a big nose. I mean, their face don't look at each other. I'm like, so far he's just got that mustache, chewing gum all the time, watching video. It's one of the compliments and the criticisms of the show. They're taking an awfully long time to get rolling. Like, to your point, I would have thought by now, okay, Riley's coaching. No, we're, we're six episodes in from what you and I have seen, and Pat Riley is still just calling games. Like, yeah. they, And I guess the good thing is this. McKay said, no, we want to do like 10 seasons of this. So it'll be like 1980 is one season. 1984 is one yeah, season. Because 1980 I, is one season. Because I looked this up because I was like, everyone else knows what's happening. I'm literally watching this. I don't really know the details. I was like, when does Riley? I looked it up. I was like, when does Riley actually take over? He's got like West head coaches for like two years. So we got, we have some time. Yeah, we're going to have to wait a while. And I listen, I love Adrian Brody. I think he's Siegel. an excellent Jason actor. Jason Siegel's good, though. I like Jason Siegel as well. Siegel, I do like as well. Yeah, his, his shock when he sees McKinney's bike accident and just uh, the short shorts and stuff. Uh, yeah, Siegel, it's, 
I know they're trying to like prove the point of these coaches. All they care about is basketball. This guy wakes up from a coma. His wife is sitting across the room, and the very first thing he's like making a coaching adjustment. It's like I get it. We want to emphasize how these guys are like into their job, but I feel like I love yeah. my job. And then you love MLB Network. You love your yeah. job. We love yeah. what we do. If I got into an accident and I woke up in a hospital, my first thought would be like, "Why the fuck am I in this hospital right now?" Like it wouldn't. No, your be first like, words are, "How are the weekend?" I wouldn't be like, "Hour two podcast. Is it up yet?" <laughs> Hour two, did they, did they get it? Sheets and giggles, is that still going on? I, that scene, I was just like, okay, I get it, but that's a bit That's a bit much. That's a very funny and accurate criticism. <laughs> what I also think about is other sports stories they could do. As a baseball guy, Harold Reynolds and I were talking, imagine the 1970 Oakland Athletics. You got Reggie Jackson, you got Catfish Hunter, yeah. Charlie Finley. I mean, uh, imagine the Oilers, Edmonton Oilers in the 1980s, Gretzky, Messi, all those kind of guys partying the cocaine. You, listen, as a, as a South Florida guy, imagine, I mean, the Hurricanes. Imagine doing a docuseries about the Miami Hurricanes, yeah. Warren Sapp. I mean, there's, there's lots I'm of, I hope this, there's though. other ideas. This is a good yeah. one. This is a good uh, one. I definitely I, I'm, I'm so in on this show. It's been fantastic. Definitely check out Winning Time. It's available on HBO. Um, I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. It's been great. Uh, last one, Love Me or Leave Me. This is a fictionalized account of the career of jazz singer Ruth Edding and her tempestuous marriage to gangster Marty Snyder, who helped propel her to stardom. Charles Vidor is the director. I'll give it a one-minute uh, brief uh, review here. What I love about it is Jeremiah Kipp's review in Slant Magazine. It's a slow crawl through a hellish relationship. Doris Day is known as one of these great singers, you know, song and dance actress, chanteuse, so to speak. And yet this movie was so unlike what I was expecting. Ty Burr, who you know I love, of Ty Burr's watch list, great film critic, formerly of the Boston Globe and Entertainment Weekly. He said in his watch list, go check out this film. It's on Turner Classic Movies, 1 o'clock airing on a Sunday, because it's a great portrait of a toxic relationship. And I thought it was so ahead of of the times you can watch a movie like that love me or leave me now in 2022 and it would feel so authentic and so real when you think about harvey weinstein the way these guys mistreat women uh, i thought it was a fascinating movie so if you were into you know jazz biopics which i know is probably not a big target market for this podcast but more specifically toxic marriages and the great james cagney he's one of my great favorite old actors obviously so incredible in the roaring 20s and the public enemy and white heat here seeing him playing a gangster who is helplessly in love with with Doris Day and yet verbally abuses her at one point physically strikes her hostile and yet she's stuck with him because of course Marty Snyder his character is the one who is getting her all these great gigs he has propelled her to the top so you can imagine so many women actresses singers they're stuck in these relationships with these managers who mistreat them they verbally abuse them they say what but they did get me to the top okay fine it's not all going to be love and roses sometimes there's some spit and vinegar I can't leave this guy I thought this movie did an amazing job of deconstructing that kind of toxic relationship check out Love Me or Leave Me from 1955. It's from Turner Classic Movies. It's just funny. I'm, I'm not doubting it's a good movie, but just check it out from 1955. Ken Hanke of Mountain Express as a highly colored biopic. It's an enjoyable mix of Day putting her stamp on Edding's best known songs and the contrasting acting styles of Day and Cagney and Dennis Schwartz. Doris was called on to act dramatically and not just sing and be the girl next door. It's definitely one memorable. As Chris said, you can go check it out from 1955. That's when, in Back to the Future, when they go back to the future, it's 1955. So that puts a stamp on how long ago and, that was. And now we're going from 1955 to the 90s.
Well, it's a real pleasure bringing Chuck Kloshman. He is as good a writer as exists in the land. And a hat tip to Ryan Rossillo, our mutual friend who called me out of the blue and said, have you read Kloshman's book? I said, yeah, I just finished it. What, do you got like a camera in my house? And he's like, oh, I'm halfway through. It's so great. And I said, I'd love to talk to you because I got his number. I'll put in a word for you. So thanks to Ryan Rossillo for hooking this up. Chuck has been without power the last few days in Portland. Is all things back to normal? How are things in the great city of Portland? Yeah, well, the snow was gone. It was it was bizarre. You know, I, I woke There was no prediction as far as I could tell that it was going to snow it had never it's apparently never snowed this late in April, you know in the spring in Portland ever and I woke up and I was kind of peering out the window and I was like that looks like snow then my glasses on or whatever and then I got up and sure enough it was and then I so I get up and I'm making my kids breakfast and about 20 minutes into it the power goes out and then it was out for 36 hours the infrastructure well the infrastructure in Portland is Fucking terrible. I mean, every like it, like any. The only thing that Portland can handle is if it rains. Right. Any other weather outside of that is a disaster. <laughs> if it's real hot, if it snows, if there's ice, if it's windy, it's like it just everything. It's just insane. But you know, so I'm fine now. Uh, yes. I'm glad things are great. Uh, the single most enjoyable aspect of your book, and there's a lot that I love. We're going to talk about Tarantino, area codes, Clarence Thomas, OJ, Bill Clinton falling down. There's a lot to get into. But the fact is this, I'm 43 turning 44, Chuck's book is called The 90s, so this is a seminal decade for me. I was ages 12 to 22, Nirvana and Reality Bites, and all this stuff was really important because it was formative years for me. But my favorite part is this, at one point you describe what it's like, just as you spoke about Wi-Fi and technology and all the rest of it, the moment of what it's like to be waiting at home saying, I've got to wait in an important phone call, I can't go anywhere. That feeling of saying, I'm waiting for this call, and then using star six nine, as you put for star-crossed lovers, maybe she called me, maybe she didn't, was there a missed call? I, I, I hate to say it, Chuck, I'm a little nostalgic for that era. Like, I get it, if we got rid of phones, it'd be a pain in the ass, because I can't get anywhere, I don't know how to drive anywhere, I need Google Maps, I do love text messaging, I hate talking on the phone, and I love texting. But that era, which you really describe well, and it's specific to guys around our age, right? If you're like 40 to 50, you know what that era was like where you did not always have a phone with you. And like I said, I'm a little nostalgic for it. You? Well, I mean, what you really are describing the literal definition of nostalgia because you are sort of injecting, I think, your memory of your life at that time back into the experience. Like, I, I, I think that if we had to suddenly have the situation that it was in 1988 or whatever, it would, it would be worse. It would make things much more complicated. The idea of going on vacation now, for example, <laughs> right. with, with a phone that's not like a smartphone, it almost seems like how did it, well, it seems like people should have been dying or something. When, <laughs> like they should have been getting lost. Or like, you know, or, or this kind of a music reference, but I used to go to this, you know, South by Southwest music festival. Yep. And when I first went, nobody really had, you know, texting or anything like that. It seems improbable to me that we were ever able to meet. I guess we were telling each other, I'll meet you at three o'clock and we all went. It just seems like that would never happen now. So it is a bit nostalgic in the sense that you're changing the memory. You're really remembering that period of your life and putting it into something that probably was inferior. Although, um, I suppose at the same time, one could argue that what this technology has done has changed society in a way that has made people maybe generally less happy in, in, a, in an unconscious way you know um the idea that the expectation is you can always be found that, that that someone if someone needs to find you they can find you and if they can't that means you're consciously ignoring them where in the past the person would be like well i called their house 
and it just rang and it went it, you know went to the machine or whatever I, I i guess i'll have to wait until steve comes back or whatever you know right. that's a great point yeah. you can't disappear with somebody now because they go no i called you i texted you i checked your instagram i tweeted you you go damn it they're on to me like you can literally you can track someone find my iPhone. i saw that you read my text i yes, saw that you read, read my text. text it's horrible i love the point you made about area codes this is fascinating area codes were introduced in 1947 the lowest digits were assigned to regions of the highest population density based on the principle that people living in highly populated areas would make more phone calls and should have to work less. This was the era of rotary phones when dialing a number could hurt your index finger. Florida now has 17 codes with 305 applying only to Miami-Dade County and the Florida Keys. I'm from Toronto, Chuck. When I first started working at ESPN, people would say, oh, the 416. Now nobody knows what the hell that is, the 905, right? Drake would talk about the six, but the area codes to me, again, a relic of the past that I do miss. Well, I mean, there was this period where people would use their area code to sort of signify where they were from. This kind of came out of hip hop, but you, you, this was a, a popular thing. And then it kind of became an ironic thing where people would sort of, um, especially white people would almost be like, well, I'm kind of talking like a hip hop guy or whatever by saying my area code. But now area codes don't dictate where you live. They just, they, it's almost like there, there's this, this past you came from, like the first place you bought a phone. Like my phone is still a 917 phone. I still have a New York phone. You know, I probably will for the rest of my life. And I guess in the future that will signal to people that I once lived in, or no, it'll signal to people that I lived in New York in the early 21st century, because that's when the, when the number would have been assigned. Mm -hmm. um, area codes are kind of an, an interest. I mean, I just think in general that the biggest change in day-to-day -day life from say 1989 to 2001 is our relationship to the phone and um and it's it's somewhat overlooked i think because you know uh, like the phone was so central it was like the most important thing in your house but we didn't view the phone itself as meaningful it was closer to like the washing machine or whatever it's like like the idea of buying a new phone every other year that would have seemed insane to someone for most of the 20th century you know it is. Uh, the podcast name is Cinephiles. Let's do some movie stuff. Although, again, there's there's so much information about the 90s, which is fasting on all levels. But I really also, and this is genuine regret, genuine nostalgia, I miss the video store. Chuck, there's nothing better going to Blockbuster. And prior to that, just, just literally going up and combing each aisle, the feeling of there's 12 copies of Police Academy 3, 11 are out. I got the last copy. When will the next copy be available? Tomorrow at noon? Okay, great. I, I miss the Be Kind Rewind, and you talk about Quentin Tarantino, I think in many ways is the director of the 90s, and it's great what you write here. It would be wrong to claim Tarantino learned about film history by working at Video Archives in Manhattan Beach, California. I was already a movie expert, he explained. That's how I got hired. He'd started probably collecting films on videotape in 1978, years before he owned a VCR. As a 16-year-old in 1979, he seemingly saw every film screen in Greater Los Angeles. And so when you think of video stores, you think of Tarantino. And that that concept of, for you as a great writer, that'd be like, oh, Chuck Klosterman went to a library every day and he just read every book and apparently became a great writer by osmosis. This thought process of Tarantino worked in a movie store, that's who became this great director. Well, no, it, but, but the video store aspect of it is a really cool part, right? Well, there was a, a, a kind of person or kind of director that was imagined in the 90s. It was this person who was essentially an extension of the video store. It was this person who loved film, lived in a world of film, surrounded by videotapes, watched them constantly, and created their aesthetic from that. Now, for Tarantino, that's not totally accurate. I mean, I because, you know, he was... 
sort of a like he says like he he was like essentially going to every film that he could in Los Angeles, which was the equivalent of almost having like a a, a, a library. But but the idea of this kind of director is most symbolized by him. Like, you know, the, the, kind of like this, it's, it's like a, a kind of a guy with this encyclopedic knowledge of film, very strong opinions, um, very sort of arcane ideas. The idea that like, oh, uh, you know, Tarantino believed like Brian De Palma was the best filmmaker of the 70s or whatever. Like that's, he wasn't the only person who thought that, but it was a very rare idea. Right. Um, and, and so Tarantino kind of seems as though a person who was built by a video store, even if that's not totally accurate. Yeah, it's amazing to think that's how he did it, and he ended up being this director who's, and literally, it, it, this term ended up becoming in vogue, right? Postmodern, a guy who would use that, kind of all these ideas in his head would go out onto the screen. There's great stuff here on Titanic and the fact it became, in many ways, the movie of the 90s. The fact that it was, you know, if you made a $50 million movie, okay, 100 maybe, no, $200 million, and somehow they pulled this thing off, and nobody thought it would succeed, and I like what you wrote about DiCaprio. Prior to Titanic, he was just a good young actor. He had an ectomorphic body, an unthreatening demeanor, and a playful intensity that translated his confidence. He'd done What's Eating Goldberg Grape, he did Romeo and Juliet, but here's what's fascinating. He was not a recluse. He participated in all the perfunctory functions expected of someone promoting a movie, but what DiCaprio did to sustain and expand this hyperbolic level of popularity, almost nothing. Like, think about Robert Pattinson now does Batman. He's going to be in every single show. He's being glamorized, etc. DiCaprio makes the, like this gigantic film, billions of dollars, wins all these Oscars. We really didn't do a whole lot with it. But he still became well, a major star. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of why Titanic is this hinge point in film. Right. Um, and DiCaprio in particular. Which is that, in some ways, he was almost like a vestige of the old world. Like the old kind of star where you didn't really know anything about him. You just sort of knew what he was what he looked like, that, that he was famous, you saw his movies and tried to understand him through his movies. But he's also the beginning of this new period where people consistently and, I mean, constantly discuss him on the internet, right? right. Especially young teenage girls. And it's almost as though they did the publicity for him. That he could sort of remain like almost like a you know like a Clark Gable figure or like this, <laughs> like a John a John Wayne figure there Jack Nicholson to a degree mm -hmm. somebody who was famous but um, didn't give a lot of interviews and didn't talk about their motivations and didn't do all these things he had this whole army of people who were basically promoting him and he'll be the only actor who ever experiences that because the old world is now gone but he came right at the end and right at the beginning of these kind of two divergent ways of a film star to exist yeah 1998 story headline loving Leo on the teen message boards of America online there are more than 30,000 postings from young subscribers pertaining to DiCaprio the next highest number for any star teenage actor Jonathan Taylor Thomas is 15 as you wrote the second statistic is obviously and absurdly incorrect but this was the feeling that Leo was so much bigger than everybody else it was wild to see all right let's get into the uh, OJ stuff because as you point out in the book the ESPN documentary was incredible and the FX show was pretty good better than I would have realized although I'm still not sure about Travolta I I said to Rosilla once, I said, either he's a really good actor giving a great bad performance, or he's actually a bad actor giving a really good performance. But either way, I found Travolta very watchable. That movie, Cuba Gooding Jr., obviously very good. But here's what's fascinating about the OJ stuff. As you wrote, 
Two things most remembered about this spectacle are A, the seemingly insane people standing along the highway who witnessed the chase in person, and B, the insane number of television viewers who watched the chase from the comfort of their own living rooms. It's the defining night of the 90s, and a phenomenon that is somehow both difficult to understand and entirely unsurprising. Many people were watching an NBA Finals game, and now they're watching a slow-moving SUV. What makes it so evocative of the 90s is how devoid of drama it actually was. I feel like you went back and watched this for the book, and you said it's incredibly boring watching this because you know the ending. Exactly. And, and you know, it, I did rewatch it, and it is weird to, to, <laughs> to watch something like that now when you know it. Because it's, it's like the broadcaster saying, like, well, he could take this exit. Like, this exit coming up, he could take it. And then, like, for long stretches, they don't talk at all. I, I, I got to say, though, it, it, you know, uh, I missed most of that chase when it happened for the, a very weird reason. Like, okay, so I had just graduated from college that spring and I was starting in a newspaper in Fargo and I had just moved into my apartment, but I didn't have cable yet. I didn't really have, I wasn't even really moved in. I just had stuff sitting around. So I was like, well, I can go to a bar and watch the NBA finals um, or I can go see the movie Backbeat, this Beatles movie. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Stephen Dorff. So, yeah. So I decide that uh, I'm going to go see Backbeat. Uh, I, I think I watched a little bit of the NBA Finals and I go there. So I watch this movie and I come out and I get in my car and I turn the key and the uh, announcer, the radio DJ, is like saying like, okay, O.J. Simpson's car is now parked, or his Bronco is parked in front of his house. And I remember thinking, it's like, the media is out of control. How is this news? A guy's got to, you know, parked his car. <laughs> uh, so then I go to a liquor store and I, I bought some liquor and the guy in the store was watching TV and he's like, are you, are you, oh, this is crazy. And I was like, I just said like, yeah, sure. I guess it's crazy. You know, you're watching TV in the store. I get home to my apartment, which, you know, I just moved into and I had like 19 messages on my, on my, you know, my machine and I hit the button and I just, it's just like people just going like, you know, beep, this is crazy. Beep. Are you watching this? Like, And then I turned the TV on and saw the end of it. I could just kind of use the rabbit ears. Right. So I actually am one of the few people who did not experience it as it was happening. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazier yeah. than you go back yeah. and relive yeah. it. And we all all know the ending. And what's amazing, too, is you put it in the book is we all kind of feel like now we know he got off. Like, no, at the time, you thought for sure he'd be guilty. Or, or you weren't totally sure. Nobody thought he would get off. Like, that was a shocking result. Mm. No, I mean, I was working as a journalist, and I remember days before this, kind of doing a person-on-the-street story. Now, granted, I'm in Fargo, so it doesn't reflect the entire world. Sure. But, you know, I'm talking to people, and uh, some people thought he would certainly go to prison, and some people didn't know. Almost no one thought he was going to get off. Yeah. And then when it happened, that all shifted, and there was suddenly this belief that everyone knew he was going to get off, and that this was a, that this whole time, yeah. you know, it, we understood that this situation was rigged. It's it's strange how that happens. So people can just so instantaneously forget uh, what they actually believed just hours before when they're sort of confronted with something that then sort of you know maybe galvanizes their worst fears about society or whatever. It's like they can just erase uh, what what they actually believed, you know. We're talking with Chuck Klossman, The 90s, a book. Go check it out. It is phenomenal. Bill Clinton stuff is fascinating. This is page 283. It's an impossible thing to explain why beyond the cinematic stardom of Polly Shore. Good line. How could a married 49-year-old liberal president 
chronically seduced an unpaid subordinate less than half his age, received non-reciprocal oral sex inside the Oval Office, get caught, lie about it, never directly apologize to the involved woman, and still experience his highest presidential approval rating immediately after being impeached for lying under oath about the nature of that sexual relationship. Every component of the scandal is so averse to the post-Me Too worldview. Only in the 90s. This could never happen today, Chuck. It's crazy to me. Well, it, I mean, and when I say how insane that seems, it is through the lens of now. Right. Like, through, when you think about it now, it does seem really crazy. At the time, it, you know, there it was it was the biggest story, and it seemed crazy, but a different kind of crazy. Not like I can't believe this is happening, but more like, can you believe this is happening? And it was like, a, like it was just sort of like it was like this is so bizarre, right. and it didn't necessarily seem to reflect on the way people perceived Clinton's ability as president. Like it, it changed the way they thought of him as a person, but the idea that somehow if he was, you know. Uh, immoral or or, or or doing this this thing it's like well uh, it, it didn't necessarily make pe- people trust him less to run the country they would have trusted him less to like hang out with their girlfriend or their wife or something <laughs> they, they, they would have seen him as a different kind of person but it was like well that's somehow disconnected um, from politics and you know in fact when that was happening um, there would be a lot of you know opinion polls and it would show that people seemed to care less than the media did. And at the time, that was sort of used to be like, well, you see, the populace is actually kind of sophisticated. They realize that this isn't that important. It's only the media who cares about this. And now that has kind of changed. Now the media perception of the time would be the perception of the average person looking back. Yeah, the way you describe it later on, the pair eventually had nine sexual encounters inside the White House, never full intercourse. Lewinsky subsequently transferred a different job. You know, the whole issue of the semen stay in blue dress. Reduced to 25 words, the president's behavior seems even worse than it was. He lied about a consensual sexual affair with a subordinate in hopes of dodging a lawsuit over a non-consensual sexual interaction with a relative stranger. It's crazy. In the 90s, Lewinsky's publicly crucified. Jones is taken even less seriously, and Clinton's approval rating went up to its highest point ever at 73%. As wild as all it is, what I think is even more interesting is this. You point out a lot of the stuff, because people would argue this. All right, Clinton as a guy, listen, like I said, I wouldn't trust him around my wife, my daughter, but hey, good president, did a lot of good things. But you point out, Chuck, a lot of the stuff he actually enacted has not been good for the country. Well, I, I think that that is certainly the, the, what the thought is now, that like he kind of introduced these ideas of neoliberalism, right. where it was the idea would be sort of like, well, we're Democrats, we still care about homelessness, and, and you know, uh, uh, we still care about, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of the traditional kind of progressive values, you know, um, but we'll use the market, basically market factors to make this happen. And now that is seen as sort of the, like the domino that pretty much changed the way the country is. Um, but a lot of the things, uh, you know, that we associate with the 1980s did happen in the 90s because of Clinton. I mean, the deregulation of banks and stuff. Like, he really, he, he sort of ushered that period in. And, and now when we look back on him, he is seen as, at best, like a pragmatist or a centrist. There are a lot of people now, I think, like on the hard left, who kind of see him as if he was a Republican. Like, they, they don't really see him as... And, and you'll find that a lot of people who were 
you know, who are who have been you know lifelong Republicans who maybe hated Clinton at the time now see that as like a charming period where at least it seemed as though he was always trying to sort of move his ideology to the middle of the country. Like he like he 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 was heavily reliant on polls and stuff like that. And he was criticized for that because it seemed sort of like mechanicals, a little bit like he was criticized in the same way we criticize, you know, analytics now in sports sometimes. It's like taking away the idea of what it's supposed to be like. Uh, but he would always just try to move his ideas toward the middle because that's where he believed was the best place to govern. And, you know, like that is something that I guess I, I miss. I miss that kind of kind of governance. But, you know, yeah. My brother-in-law is a huge Clinton fan, so I'm going to mention this to him. Inadvertently destroyed the safety net for millions of people by signing a bad welfare bill, packaging a positive gun law with a racist crime bill, fueling the concept of Fox News, and mortally wounding the future prospects of Al Gore. But this guy's like a C-plus president at best. It's crazy. Well, I mean, you know, he was. I, I mean, I'm sort of, I'm sort of quoting there as like somebody who wrote about this later. You know, I what we what's important to remember about Clinton's presidency is that was. It was happening at a time when it was relatively easy to be president. I mean, there, there wasn't a war going on. There wasn't even a Cold War going on. Right. You know, the economy was kind of going up. The, the concerns of the average person were lower. The stakes were lower, you know. So, I mean, he was, in my view, a very good president for a good period of time. Like, you know, it's like like uh, there, there are wartime presidents and there are guys who are good to be presidents when people are worried about, like, our spotted owls being eliminated in Alaska. Like, these are the kind of stories you'd see in the news in the 90s. That would be the front of, you know? Right. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, Clarence Thomas. This this is, I mean, I, I've forgotten how salacious this was. Page 255. The salacious specifics of what captivated America. For those that know, no, no, I need a Hill uh, accused Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. Hill said Thomas liked to talk about the size of his penis and the clothes Hill wore to work. One of her anecdotes involved Thomas's interest in pornography and name-checked the porn star Long Dong Silver. The most memorable of her allegations was that Thomas once looked at a can of Coca-Cola on his desk and asked, who has put pubic hair on my Coke? This is not surprising that this kind of salacious content, Chuck, would captivate America. But the fact that Thomas at One Tech refused to this as a high-tech lynching. Like, if it was a white woman and a black man, I don't know what would have happened. If it was a white guy and a black one, I don't know what would have happened. But the fact they were both black, as you point out, if you're a liberal, you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Who are you supposed to support here? I mean, it, it was a strange situation because I do think that, uh, particularly for people who were liberal, it was sort of like, well, okay, is this about sexism or about racism? Like, would they, like, you know, it was, uh, he was, he was, they were replacing a black judge on the court, even though politically he was kind of diametrically opposed. So there was a lot of people on the hard right who viewed this as like, well, this is almost tokenism or whatever. It's like, that's the only, um, you, know, uh, you know, so there was a racist perception of some people who had you know, issues with Clarence Thomas. There was also the idea of, the, of, of, of sexual harassment that had existed, like it had been on the books basically for 15 years at the time. But like one thing, if you go back and you watch or even just read the transcripts from this period, um, like Clarence Thomas kept saying sex harassment like, like he would always he wouldn't say sexual harassment, but but there's a reason for that. I mean, by by constantly saying sex harassment, it kept reminding people that they'd never actually had sex, and it's just hard to sort of understand this now. But at the time, there was this idea it was like some people were like, well, how can he? How can it have been sexual harassment if there was no sex involved? Like, like they, the I now we all understand this now. Like there would be it, it would be impossible 
for somebody who had that relationship with someone uh, to be, you know, to to sort of succeed in the public sphere in any way. But at the time, it was still like, like that's the to me the like what I found that's very interesting about putting on a book like this. It's like, so you know, there's three kinds of people who are reading this book: people who experience the '90s and really remember it. People who were either born into the 90s or after, and this is no different than reading about the Civil War almost, like it's just the past thing. And then people who are much older, who just saw the 90s as like one more decade on a succession of decades that all seem to get worse. And the way that they perceive these events uh, is all different and it makes it complicated to explain. I, I was always trying to figure out, it was like, how much exposition do I need? I mean, at one point, I seriously was like, do I need to describe what a compact disc is. <laughs> you know, because... Like, I still have my lot, CDs, yeah. Well, yeah, but there's a lot of people who've never owned one or saw one, and and of and your records have come back, and people have a, a vague understanding of cassettes. But then I was like, well, you know, when I was a kid, I knew what a reel-to-reel was. Like, I knew what an 8-track was and stuff. It's like I've, I'm just sort of banking on the fact that the kind of person who buys a book like this uh, will... Uh, you know, have a sense of that that the world was slightly different. Or like a rotary phone. Like, I don't describe how a rotary phone actually works. I'm hoping that people have seen enough old movies to know, but, you know. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes if you just say, okay, if you don't know, you can Google it and figure it out. This book is so great. Here's stuff we didn't get to, and all of you should go read the book. Reality Bites. How the hell did she pick Ben Stiller over Ethan Hawke? I still don't get that. Nirvana, the fact that Kurt Cobain did not want to be a star. His thoughts on Pearl Jim. Falling Down, a film that I loved at the time. It chucks as you watch it now. It's a terrible movie. In the Company of Men and Kids, two great films. I particularly love Neil Labute's book. The Baseball Strike, too painful to me. That's why I didn't want to bring it up, but Chuck does break it down. Plus, Jordan playing baseball, which is too amusing to me to even bring up. Chuck Klosterman, the best-selling author of eight non-fiction books, including Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, But What If We're Wrong and Killing Yourself to Live, two novels, and the short story collection Raised in Captivity. He's written for the New York Times, The Washington Post, GQ, Esquire, Spin, The Guardian, The Believer, and of course, we are former ESPN colleagues. He served as the ethicist for the New York Times Magazine three years. He's buddy with Bill Simmons. He lives in Portland, Oregon, and he's written a hell of a book in the 90s. Chuck, this was awesome, man. I can't thank you enough. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. All right, thank you so much, of course, to my friend Chris Cody, who is now going on vacation. He's oh, going no, on a cruise. I'm on vacation right now. You're on vacation. This now. thing is out. Listing. He's on I'm vacation. Gone. I have a margarita in my hand currently. <laughs> We need to crank up this podcast just to, uh, you know, appease the masses. So thank you to all of you for listening. I hope Chris is still enjoying his Mai Tai. And I hope you enjoyed all the recent reviews, The Bubble, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, A Fish Called One, and of course the ones we talked about here, Winning Time on HBO and Love Me or Leave Me. And a big, big time thank you to Chuck Kloshman. His book is called The 90s. And of course a thank you to Ryan Rosilla for the assist for passing along Chuck's area code and his cell phone. Uh, next episode we'll be talking about the movie Unforgiven, 30th anniversary of an Academy Award winning film from Clint Eastwood. I don't know what newer movies we're doing next, but uh, lots of great stuff coming up here in the fall. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you at the movies. <laughs>